The South Carolina House answers the government's call, or rather the governor's call, to return to Columbia next Tuesday to try and pass pro-life legislation. The Biden family criminal enterprise comes closer to being fully revealed. Evidence emerges that President Biden was directly involved in the memo used to undermine the New York Post story on Hunter Biden's laptop. And President Trump returns to cable news with a surprising town hall at Believe it or not, CNN. This is Truth in Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. It's time to crank it up. Okay, it's time for a little celebration because Friday's here. We call this backpatting day around here. <laughs> Why? Well, uh, because we encourage you to reach around, kind of pat yourself on the back, and give yourself credit for making it this far. You just got to get to 12 o'clock for some people today. Well, actually, it's not Friday. It's Thursday. See, this is what happens when you are sleep-deprived. When you come in late at night and you... <laughs> You have all kinds of stuff that you have to do in the evening after you start at 4.30 in the morning. You get the wrong day. I mean, how better to start out an, an internet radio program and podcast than to actually mess up what day it is? Um, folks, I do promise you that I know what day it is. Just got a little bit distracted there. You can tell I'm really ready for Friday this week, and so I'm kind of running toward it, kind of hoping Friday's going to get here quicker than it actually does. But anyway, good Thursday to you. Hope you're having a, a great day. Um, South Carolina House of Representatives, let's talk a little bit about that, get a little local South Carolina stuff in, and uh, then we'll get into the national news, and there's a whole lot of stuff today that's breaking on the national news front, um, as you heard some of the stories in the introduction this morning. So... In any event, um, South Carolina House is not going to be able to get to S-474. And, of course, you know, you, you hang around the State House, you start using State House lingo and talking about bills according to their number. We're, we're talking about essentially a revised heartbeat bill. Uh, this is what the Senate passed. And for those of you who haven't been following all of this, um, the Senate passed a heartbeat bill and the House passed the Human Life Protection Act. The Senate filibustered, thanks to six Republicans that joined the Democrats, the Human Life Protection Act, and it went down to defeat in the Senate because they couldn't get it up for the final vote. It actually passed the Senate 22 to 21. The votes were present. The majority of the Senate wanted the, the Human Life Protection Act, which would have protected life in the womb beginning at a uh, clinically diagnosable pregnancy, but uh, that was not to be thanks to six Republicans who uh, stood against it and the, the Democrats, of course. So that bill went down, and it looked like we were going to end the legislative session with South Carolina being an abortion destination state from now until at least January of 2024 when the House and Senate would come back in session. But now, uh, leaders on, in both chambers, in the Senate and in the House, have uh, worked out some uh, a, sort of a, a plan to revive the heartbeat bill, which was passed in the Senate, 
with some modifications from the House, which have, have already been done. Uh, that bill has been vetted through uh, the House Judiciary Subcommittee. It went favorably to the full House Judiciary Committee, and now it's on the floor of the House. But today's the last day of the session, and they're not going to have time to get to it. So the governor has called the House back into session on Tuesday, and they're going to stay until they get through what's expected to be, uh, get this, as many as a 1,000, that's right, that's one and three zeros, a 1,000 amendments being offered by Democrats. Now, the amendments are not going to pass. Uh, the, the whole point of this is to slow the process to a grind and grind down the opposition to the point that either Republicans leave or give up or uh, just get tired of the debate. But the Republicans, I think, are going to stand firm. I think they realize it would be a disaster on many fronts, politically, but also just from a humanitarian perspective, which is the most important thing, that we they would leave uh, this legislative session with South Carolina being an abortion destination state with over 1,000 abortions a month. I think they know that that's unacceptable on multiple levels. So um, they're going to stay. I think they will stay. I believe the Republicans will weather the storm. It could take 14, 15 hours. Who knows? When you offer an amendment, there's an allotted amount of time for debate. Normally, under normal circumstances, the debate can go back and forth for, for quite some time. But six minutes, there is a, a rule that limits it to six minutes. But if you have a 1,000 amendments and they all come to the floor and each one of them takes six minutes, uh, that's four and a half days. So there's going to have to be um, – I, I don't know how they're going to do this, how they're going to uh, get through those 1,000 amendments. But I do need to say that I'm confident that the Republicans will stand firm in the House and that they'll get through the amendments – if you ask me, do I think that a bill is going to pass in the House, my answer would be yes. Do I think the Senate will concur? Uh, my answer would be, I hope so. I, I, we're hearing that there's enough votes in the Senate to pass what the House sends to them as long as the House doesn't alter what it's working on now. And the essential framework of, of the bill is essential. It's it's the heartbeat bill. It's a, it's a six-week bill. When a heartbeat is detected, that's usually around six weeks into the pregnancy. And there are exceptions, rape and incest, fatal fetal anomaly, um, as well as uh, life of the mother. Now, the only one of those exceptions I agree with is the life of the mother, not the health of the mother, because the health can be the mental health. The um, I mean, it can, it can be interpreted in so many ways that that leaves a door open wide enough to drive a Mack truck through when it comes to exceptions. But the life of the mother is very specific, and in this bill, that's the way it's worded. If the mother's life is in danger, then and, and an abortion is necessary to save her life, then it would be permitted. It would not be illegal. And, I mean, that's, that is so rare that that ever happens. In fact, usually in circumstances where um, a, a woman gets in trouble because of the process of giving birth, the best thing to do is to deliver the baby. And so, um, it, I mean, it, 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 the, the, taking the baby's life at that point oftentimes is, is not helping the mother uh, to survive whatever's happening that could threaten her life. But occasionally, um, that could be the case. So 
life of the mother. That's life for life. You're, you're, not, you're talking about the mother's life, the baby's life. Both are sacred. Both are precious. Both are created in the image of God. And if, if there has to be a choice made, um, then making the choice to save the mother's life is acceptable. Um, but the other exceptions, I mean, rape and incest, I've said this a thousand times, but I'm going to reiterate it again here uh, since we're talking about it. Rape is a horrible crime uh, against a woman. Uh, it's, it's violent. It's degrading. It's emotionally destructive. It can be physically destructive. I mean, it, there, there's, it, it, I can't condemn it in enough words um, because of, of the abhorrent nature of that attack or assault against a woman. But in that assault, if a baby is created, obviously the baby didn't have anything to do with the rape. Um, yes, could it be uncomfortable for a woman to bear a child that is the result of, of rape? Yes, it could be uncomfortable. But when you compare being uncomfortable to being dead, um, there, there's not really a very good comparison. I mean, I, I don't want anybody to go to suffer a rape, but when, a, when the crime is committed, the perpetrator needs to be found and punished to the full extent of the law, but the baby in the womb shouldn't have to give up their life because of the circumstances surrounding their conception, even though it's horrendous. Uh, there are plenty of parents that want to adopt in fact, adoption agencies are looking for, for babies because there are so many people that for whatever reason can't have a baby on their own or they find themselves in a position where God has blessed them and they want to expand their family by adopting a baby. So the, the, the idea that this baby is going to be neglected or not have a home, or yes, it's, it's not going to be pleasant for the mother but the baby deserves a chance to live in the cases of rape and incest, which are, are both horrendous things. Um, and then th the third thing, fatal fetal anomaly. There was some debate in the Judiciary Committee on Tuesday night about this, talking about changing the language from fatal to severe uh, fetal anomaly. Uh, that's what the Democrats wanted. That was an amendment offered by Representative Wetmore in the Judiciary Committee. Well, um, it, it's significant that the word fatal stay in the bill simply because severe fetal anomaly can be interpreted in at least a dozen ways, um, plus the, to be consistent with uh, bills that have been passed in the, have, have made it into law in the past in South Carolina, as Representative McCravey from Greenwood pointed out, uh, it, we needed to keep the language consistent, and fatal fetal anomaly, words mean things. Um, and, and in order to be consistent with previous law, which courts look at things like that, uh, we needed to stay with fatal fetal anomaly. So the amendment to change the wording was tabled, and in fact there were a multitude of amendments that were tabled on Tuesday night. Uh, it was a long session for the Judiciary Committee, but again, the Republicans stood strong, tabled the amendment, um, all, all of the amendments, and got the bill to the floor. So that essentially, this bill will protect life at six weeks. It's not a perfect bill. Uh, my preference would to be not to have two of the three exceptions, 
My preference would be that we would protect life beginning at conception because I believe that life is precious and made in the image of God at conception. But we don't have the political will to achieve that in South Carolina. And the, the goal of, of the legislature should be to pass the best bill that they can it, 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 and, and to protect life as much as they can. And I believe that's the heart of the Republicans in the House and the Senate that will go along with this, that most of them, what they want is to do what's politically possible that can be constitutionally sustainable. And that means having the right language. This is going to go back before the South Carolina Supreme Court. There's no way that it won't because Planned Parenthood will file a lawsuit before the ink dries on the bill when the, gov when the governor signs it, should it get passed into law. Uh, but hopefully there can be an expedi expedited process since this particular uh, bill almost in, in its current form has already been to the South Carolina Supreme Court. So it would maybe we could bypass some of the legal system and, and the Supreme Court could just take it up uh, knowing that it's going to come to them and we, we could get that settled without too much trouble between now and uh, when the bill could actually be implemented. So in any event, um, that's where we are. Uh, Republicans will be back in Columbia next Tuesday and they've made a commitment and I believe them that they're going to stay and work through all of these proposed amendments until uh, they get a bill passed. And that's, uh, I mean, uh, we need to pray for them. Uh, we need to pray for our state. And, and, and one other thing I'll say, you know, if you don't like the bill, if, if you look at the South Carolina legislature and you say, we can do better, and that's how you feel about it, that you think, we should be protecting life beginning at conception, and that bill should pass no problem. Uh, then the thing to do is to en endorse and to work for candidates that can get elected, particularly in the Senate, um, who would agree with you. Because, again, politics is about compromise at, 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 the, at its heart. Because and, and I don't like that word either. Look, I'm... You know, there are things that I think are morally right that are grounded in the Word of God, and those are the things that, that turn out to be best for society and best for culture. That's why we talk about here truth and politics and culture. The truth always is the best thing for everybody concerned. But the, the problem is that you can't get everybody in, a political, in the political world to agree with that, to agree on exactly what the truth is. And so the, the way to do that is to find people that support the truth, that understand how to defend it, and get them elected to office. Uh, because the political environment right now, if, if we're going to get a bill that protects life, this is the bill that we can get. It's the bill where the political will lies. And it again, it's not it's not perfect, but it will be so much better than what we have now, which is 22 weeks, 22 weeks down to six weeks, and we will not be the abortion destination state that we are at this moment. Uh, we can cut those abortions from a thousand a month down to 500 and hopefully below 500. 
uh, when the bill, when the original heartbeat bill went into effect for one month in July of 2022, the number of abortions that month was around 200. Now, just imagine if we can reduce the abortion rate in South Carolina from 1,000 to around 200, the number of babies' lives that will be saved. That's significant. It's not perfect because what I want is for every child that is conceived to have the opportunity to live. But in the political environment that we're in, if we can get down to 200, that may be the best we can do politically until some seats get changed, particularly in the Senate. Um, and we're going to talk more about that as we go forward because it, it's incredibly important. People's uh, perception of South Carolina as being a, a deep red state, uh, as being a state that is just doing great guns with conservative principles because of the size of our Republican majorities in the legislature and the fact we have a Republican governor and all of the other elected offices are held by Republicans, that, that fact lulls us into a sense of, well, we've done our job, we've put all these people in office that are supposed to agree with our values, and so now we just need to sit back and let the process go forward. The problem with that is that some of the people that got elected that are were saying that they supported the Republican platform are not necessarily all in. And we, if we're going to look like Florida in terms of being able to pass truly conservative legislation, if we're going to look like Montana, if we're going to look like South Dakota or some of these other states, Arkansas, for example, um, we're, we're going to have to be sure that the people in Columbia that we send there are people who have a deep abiding commitment to the truth and that they believe in the Republican Party platform and are willing to defend it. Uh, there's a lot of good people in Columbia right now that are doing just that. I don't want to leave you the impression that, you know, there's nobody that does what's right because there's plenty of people that are taking strong stands. I just described the Republicans on the Judiciary Committee taking a strong stand Tuesday night and the fact that I believe the Republicans in the House are going to be strong pushing back against all these amendments. But so there's good people there, and it's up to us as the voters to be informed about where people stand, but also what where they have stood, not only where they stand when they're campaigning, but where they have stood since they've been in office. And we can discern the differences and decide whether that person should go back into service again, should be reelected. All right, let's move on. I want to talk about Republicans on the over the House Oversight Committee. And, of course, that committee is led by Representative James Comer, who's a Republican from Kentucky. And according to the Oversight Committee, they have the goods. They finally have the evidence that reveals what we would call the Biden family criminal enterprise. I mean, they had a press conference yesterday, the, the members of the Oversight Committee working on this particular issue of the influence peddling of the Biden family, particularly overseas, and the evidence they dropped is credible. Now, does it mean 100% that we just need to pass final judgment here and say that the Bidens are corrupt? Uh, I'll be honest with you, I'm happy to do that because I think the evidence is overwhelming. But they're going to have to present the evidence. They've begun the process now 
of presenting the evidence that they've found in a systematic way to back up the claims of the, particularly James Comer, who's the chairman, who has clearly said that President Biden has been lying since 2020, since he ran for office about the fact that the family members, the Biden family members, he said over and over, are not getting any money. They're not getting money from foreign enterprises. And the bank records that the House Oversight Committee has been able to get, just four banks, and they believe, by the way, that there are 12 banks involved in shuffling money around to hide the fact that the Bidens have been getting paychecks from countries like China and Romania, um, that they're, they're looking, they're going to be looking at these other banks. But Representative Comer says, we can prove now that President Biden has not been honest with the American people about this. Instead of being honest with the American people, President Biden has claimed since the 2020 election that his family has not received money from China. That was a lie in 2020, and he continues to lie to the American people now. Okay, now this is significant because a lot of people believed the president, or at that time, the vice president, uh, former vice president, I should say, they believed him when he was running for office that the Biden family didn't have anything to do with any of the money that was coming in. It was just Hunter Biden and that he's this brilliant businessman. He's got these incredibly smart partners and they set up these companies. And yes, they were able to make money, but that's the American way. I mean, that's capitalism. What's wrong with that? Why not have that? Well, the problem is that none of that is true in terms of the way that this went down. It's a complicated network of foreign contacts, shell companies, and business transactions, and it involves nine members of Joe Biden's family. Now, before, the attention's all, all been pretty much focused on Joe Biden and on his brother and um, on Hunter Biden and his associates. But now we know that up to nine family members were getting checks from China and Romania. They were being funneled through these different uh, for these different banks, it was being funneled through shell companies that they set up. Um, so the and the details from all of this, once again, is coming from bank records that reveal that how much money did they take? I mean, you're you're probably wondering, what what kind of money are we talking about? Are we talking about a few hundred thousand bucks? Or no, we're talking about millions of dollars, ten million to be specific from businesses in China and Romania, and that money was coming to the Biden family through these shell companies while Joe Biden was serving as vice president. When Biden became Obama's vice president in 2009, beginning at that point, 20 companies at least affiliated with the Biden family members were set up. And the companies were used to set up a network of cutouts and pass-throughs that make it difficult to trace the flow of money. One of the things that Representative Comer emphasized yesterday in the press conference is that when you look at these bank records, it's obvious somebody's trying to hide something. That You don't set up shell companies in order to be transparent. You set them up to funnel money, to make it look like legitimate business interest, but they're actually, as I said, pass-throughs so that the money comes from Romania, from China, from these, and, and some connected with the Chinese intelligence agencies. That money comes through those banks, through those companies, into various banks and go into the accounts of Biden family members. 
foreign operatives, the way this thing would work, foreign op operatives would pay the companies a sum of money. And then a third of that money, let's say a company, uh, let's just make up something here, um, just as an example. Let's say that a foreign operative puts in $3 million to one of these companies. Well, a million dollars of that money would be dispersed into Biden family accounts, various accounts. Now, we don't know yet you know, why one Biden family member would get more than another or where that money ended up once it got in the Biden family account. But we know this, that the money was coming to companies and a third of it was going being dispersed through these banks to Biden family members. Romanian businessman Gabriel Popovich paid Rob Walker, who was a Hunter Biden associate, and th this is, uh, you know, uh, uh, the money actually went to Walker LLC, which and then dispersed about a million dollars into various Biden family accounts. So during the time that that uh, Joe Biden was vice president under Obama. 15 of 17 payments that were made from Popovich to Walker took place. And those and that money, a million dollars of it, ended up in the various Biden family accounts. And of course, at the at the time that all this was happening, President Biden, or, or rather, well, President Biden now, at the time, Vice President Biden was lecturing the Romanians about the dangers of foreign influence in, in politics. You talk about hypocrisy. I mean, here's the guy whose son has set up all of these shell companies and corporations, have all these banks involved, have companies in China and even in Romania, where the, where the vice president was lecturing about influence in politics and money was flowing from Popovich and others in Romania into the Biden family accounts. Now, the question is, were decisions being made based on the fact that that money was flowing into these accounts? The House Oversight Committee is still working on that. But the fact that the money was being hidden, the fact that the, the money trail, that they went to so much trouble setting up these LLCs in order to hide where the money was coming from is, is it, I mean, first of all, that's a violation of the law, let alone whether or not Vice President Biden was using his influence uh, because of the money that was coming in. I mean, it would be impossible to think that the, that the vice president, when his family was benefiting to the tune of a million dollars from Popovich in Romania, that the vice president wouldn't be inclined to be favorable toward legislation and toward for foreign policy decisions that favored the Romanian government. I mean, I, I, that, that just doesn't make sense that it would be any other way. Um, and again, the evidence coming from bank records um, and the Republicans got those bank records by issuing subpoenas. And so far, only four of the banks have responded or they've gotten the information from four and up to 12 were used as part of the shell game. The White House dismissed the allegations as baseless innuendo. And of course, if you're looking for this story today in the legacy media, uh, you better get out your magnifying glass or um, some device to help you try to find it uh, because they pretty much ignored the information. They've dismissed it or they buried it on page 10 under the obituaries. CNN, The New York Times, The Washington Post, ABC, NBC, and CBS 
all buried the story while they were pushing the story on the George Santos indictment. Now, before we move on from this, I want to go back and actually look from some of the uh, information that was included in the report because the, the report, and by the way, you can get the report. Um, I'm looking for it here. This is where I need my, I need Gary Miller, my producer, to be pulling this stuff up. If you go to Daily Signal, there's a story there today that contains the actual memorandum, uh, the, the preliminary report that came out from the House Oversight Committee that they used for the press conference yesterday. And here's just some of the bullet points, okay? I've, I've kind of gone over them already, but I want to I read them to you straight from the report so you can see that what we're talking about here is legitimate. The committee has reviewed thousands of bank records. That's number one. They obtained thousands of relevant bank records via subpoenas, and they revealed what we just reported, this complicated network of Biden family and associate companies. Biden family members and business associates created over 20 companies that were limited liability companies formed during Joe Biden's vice presidency. The Biden family received millions of dollars from foreign sources. The Biden family used business associates' companies to receive the foreign funds. Despite creating many companies after Vice President Biden took office, the Biden family used business associates' companies to receive millions of dollars. Attempts to conceal large financial transactions took place. Uh, after foreign companies sent money to business associates, companies, the Biden family received incremental payments over time to different bank accounts. That's how the Republicans were able to tell that this is this is the pattern of a cover-up. I mean, it's not a it, you know it's not a blatant cover-up, but it's not designed to be. It's designed to be a subtle cover-up with payments being dispersed in small amounts over a period of time, but after, you know, it doesn't take long for that to add up to real money where the Bidens are actually getting millions of dollars. These complicated financial transactions, according to the committee, appear to conceal the source of the funds and reduce the conspicuousness of the total amounts made into the bank, uh, Biden bank accounts. Chinese nationals hid the source of the money. So let's back up to the source. We've talked about the fact that the the companies, the LLCs that were set up by the Biden by the Bidens, twenty of them, those concealed where the money was going. That it was concealing the fact that the money was going into Biden family accounts. But then let's back up to China. Chinese nationals and companies with significant ties to Chinese intelligence and the Chinese Communist Party hid the source of the funds by layering domestic limited liability companies. In other words, the Chinese were involved in this. They were involved in helping the Bidens cover the fact that the money was flowing into their accounts. The number of Biden family members, as the committee traces additional financial transactions, the committee continues to identify new Biden family members who may have benefited financially from the foreign companies. Right now, the number's up to nine. Now, we don't know if we're going to find more, but so far, nine family members in the Biden family um, have been connected to these payments. Now, folks, look, this is serious stuff. I mean, I, the, the evidence here is not only credible, it's overwhelming. And it's not over. 
because the, the committee is still looking into this. They still have those other banks to subpoena. Uh, the, there are going to be more financial records that corroborate all of this information. And by the way, the whistleblower from the FBI that came forward that's been revealing information to the House Oversight Committee involving some of this stuff, the committee says that the whistleblower's information corroborates the subpoenas, uh, the information that they got from su the subpoenas. In other words, this, this whistleblower was telling the committee all this stuff was going on, and now through the subpoena process, the committee's been able to corroborate the whistleblower's story. So the, the media can ignore this, but they can't ignore it forever. Uh, there, there's no way. Eventually, this is going to have to come out, and it's going to affect the 2024 presidential election. All right, another bombshell yesterday. I mean, I, I hate to use that word because it's overused, but it, it really was. A 68-page report was released yesterday that demonstrate that the White House coordinated the efforts in the uh, 2020 campaign to undermine the New York Post story on Hunter Biden's laptop being found in that Delaware computer repair shop. The New York Post came out with that story, was about three weeks, I think it was, before the election, and the major news media buried it, and then the Biden administration concocted this story that it was Russian disinformation. They involved 51 CIA, former CIA employees and directors, and now you've got this the information coming out. Former acting CIA director Michael Morell was the main author of the letter, and he led the effort to recruit signatories, and he was contacted by none other than Anthony Blinken, who happens to be the current Secretary of State. And so, winking, blinking, and nod here. I mean, you've got Blinken talking to Morell and telling him Morell was ignoring this stuff, and he admits that when the Hunter Biden laptop story came out, he thought, well, there's really nothing to see here, uh, but he was pulled into this by Anthony Blinken. Morell recalled that Blinken didn't direct him in so many words to write a letter. This is coming, by the way, today from National Review. Yet they clearly discussed that it would be helpful for former Vice President Biden to have ammunition to push back against what it was assumed would be then-President Trump's highlighting of the post-reporting in the presidential debate that was coming in a few days on October 22nd. Now, that was October 22nd, um, and, and went right before the election in November. He pointedly asked whether Morell believed that Russian intelligence agents were involved in disseminating the Hunter Biden emails, notwithstanding that Morell had not read the reporting about the emails. I mean, Morell didn't know anything about this. Just in, just in case Blinken's... Um, elliptical words had failed to convey loudly and clearly enough what the campaign wanted. He also emailed Morell a USA Today article titled, A Tabloid Got a Trove of Data on Hunter Biden from Rudy Giuliani. Now the FBI is probing a possible disinformation campaign. So Morell proceeded to do some research of his own. He consulted with, um, Ma with um, Mark, uh, this guy's last name is a challenge, uh, Polymer Paulus, Polymer Paulus, I think is correct. He was the CIA former acting chief of operations for Europe and Asia. 
He's cre- and by the way, that's a credential that would lend credibility to a claim of Russian disinformation. So they get Polymopoulos uh, in, involved in this, and he agrees to co-write the letter and produce the first draft, and then he told the committees that Morell did not tell him with whom he was dealing in the Biden campaign, but that someone from from uh, from the the Biden family or the Biden campaign, I should say, had asked for this. Asked for what? They had asked for a letter that would be signed by former CIA directors and operatives that would debunk the story about Hunter's laptop by saying that it was a Russian plant, that it was Russian disinformation. Morale maintained that he and others truly were concerned that Russia could be interfering in the election, but they didn't have any evidence whatsoever that Russia was in any way involved in the Hunter Biden emails or their dissemination or anything about the laptop. Meantime, Trump's National Intelligence Director, John Ratcliffe, issued a public statement to the effect that U.S. intelligence agencies had no indication that Russian intelligence services had played any role in the Post reporting. Now, Ratcliffe was responding to an unsupported claim by the top House Democrat at the time, Adam Schiff, that the Russians were behind it. So this is, and then morale morale came out and basically said, well, nobody's going to pay any attention to Ratcliffe. Uh, even though he's national intelligence director, we've got more access to information with all these CIA former directors than Ratcliffe does. So that's why Morrell edited the draft of the letter, the proposed letter that he circulated to potential signers that, that described the Post reporting as having the feel of a Russian operation. Now, you see what's going How deep does this go? Pres- uh, then... Candidate Biden coordinated efforts, excuse me, coordinated efforts with uh, Morell, who was the acting CIA director, to put a draft of this letter that they then went around and told these different CIA officials that they had evidence, which they didn't, of uh, that the Hunter Bi- uh, Biden laptop story was Russian disinformation. Now, Morrell conceded that he wanted the letter published because he wanted Biden to win the election. This is, this is the CIA. These people are supposed to be neutral. They're not supposed to be out rooting for a candidate. They're supposed to be in the business of gathering intelligence to protect the people of the United States and to keep our national security in place. And that doesn't include campaigning for one potential presidential candidate, and it certainly doesn't include putting out a false letter that they know is false and getting a bunch of former CIA operatives and directors to sign off of it so that on it so that Biden's got something to say at the October 22nd debate to push back against Trump when Trump comes after him about Hunter Biden's laptop. Because CIA officers sign lifetime agreements that prohibit the unauthorized dissemination of classified information, Morell had to ensure that the letter went through a review by the CIA's pre-publication classification review board. And that act, that apparently that took place as the CIA's former top official, who was seen as its potential future boss, Morell told the agency that uh, at 6.34 a.m., 
that the that this was a rush job because he needed to get the letter out as soon as possible. He got an acknowledgement shortly after 7 a.m. that the letter was approved, and it was published around 5 p.m. that afternoon. Now, that's warp speed, ladies and gentlemen. That is warp nine, if you're a Star Trek fan, how, that a government agency can speak to another government agency and get a document approved in 30 minutes. And we're supposed to believe that it went through some type of vetting process that makes any sense. So morale conceded also to the oversight committee that it would be inappropriate for the CIA to have promoted the letter and that the letter's authors added that such an action by the CIA would be incredibly unprofessional, particularly uh, if they'd been misled by information that was provided to them that was put in the letter. Once the letter was final and 51 signatures had been gathered, Morell and his colleagues worked with the Biden campaign to shop it to preferred media outlets. So have you got the sequence of events? Hunter Biden laptop found in Delaware. New York Post does an excellent story. They do what the press is supposed to do. They report the news instead of trying to write the news. And then all of the major networks, they all yawn and bury the story. The Biden, uh, the, at that time, candidate Biden recognized that this could hurt him in the debate on October 22nd. So he enlists morale through Anthony Blinken, Blinken to come up with this bogus story of which there was no supporting evidence to say that the Hunter Biden laptop story was Russian disinformation. It gets vetted in 30 minutes, and then once the letter is drafted and all these signers sign on because they want Joe Biden to be president, not because there's any truth to it, but because they're involving themselves in the campaign in a way that's false, then the Biden campaign begins to shop this around to the different media outlets. They were just sitting there waiting like a bunch of hun a pack of hungry dogs waiting for scraps from the dinner table. They're sitting there waiting for the Biden administration to throw them something that they can print and support him and give him cover during the campaign. And that's exactly what's coming to light here. At the same time, that we're finding out about these 20 shell companies set up during the, what the time uh, Biden was vice president to funnel money to nine different Biden family members. Now, folks, <laughs> I, I don't, this, this is, um, th this in, in a world where everybody was being honest about the weight and the validity of the news, this would be on the front page of every newspaper in the world it would lead every single uh, broadcast, but the world we live in is a world where progressives get protection. It's, it's, as we've been through before, the watchdog media became the lapdog media, and now they're the guard dog media. Much of the legacy media's job is to be the PR firm and the protection for progressive ideas and progressives who are running for office. And our country can't survive that forever. I mean, that needs to stop, and the American people need to know this and hold everybody accountable. This shouldn't be something that just comes out in a report, gets put in a, a binder, and stuck on a shelf somewhere. 
people have got to be held accountable for the actions that they took to deceive the American people. There are, there are polls, there's polling data that says that if the Hunter Biden laptop story had not been buried, if it had been allowed to come out and to be a legitimate news story, which everybody admits now that it was, of course, it's too late now, we have the Biden administration. But if that laptop story had just simply been allowed to see the light of day, a number of Americans, enough Americans in, that voted in the election in 2020 say they would have changed their mind up to, I think it was up to 30% of people after finding out about the Hunter laptop story, they didn't know about it, they would not have voted for Biden. That would have changed the outcome of the election. That's how serious this particular story, these stories are, and they should have that kind of weight, of course, but they don't because we have a legacy media that's given over to protecting Biden and any progressive. All right, um, last night, President Trump went to CNN. Now, CNN's trying to rehabilitate their image. You know, they have an image as, as being a left-wing news site that hates everything about the right, that hates Donald Trump, that, I mean, and it's an image well-deserved because they spent most of their time pushing the Russia collusion story. They spent most of their time um, when Trump was president attacking him. And then since Trump left the White House, they've been pushing every story that's negative about Trump. And so it's interesting. Trump has fought back. I mean, big surprise, right? Uh, that President Trump would punch back against people that were coming after him constantly. And he's called a bunch of people at CNN names. And now all of a sudden he decides to go on with Caitlin Collins and have a town hall in New Hampshire. And I'm sure part of the agreement to get him to appear on CNN was that the audience would be Republicans, uh, undecided Republicans, but it turns out that they were mostly pro-Trump, and I think Trump knew this. Look, say or think what you will about Donald Trump, and everybody listening to the show knows where my feelings lie along that plane, but here's, here's the thing. This guy is a smart guy when it comes to his political instincts. Now, I'm not talking about his instincts when it comes to what he says or how he says it, some of the ways that he communicates. I think that hurts him in ways that were significant in 2020, and I think it hurts some of the people that he endorsed in the midterms in 2022. But here's, here's the thing about it. You know, we remember when you had that train derailment um, and you, you had all these people that were suffering and the government was dragging their feet, President Trump shows up and starts handing out bottles of water. He goes into the local restaurant, talks to the people, spends time with them. That is good political instincts because that is, that is playing to his strength, the, facts that, the fact that he's connected to the people and the people love him for it. So what does he do last night? Well, he goes on CNN, and one of the first things he deals with is, and of course, because of Caitlin Collins, she brings it up, is the 2020 election. Was it stolen? And the president did two things in this answer. He doubled down on the fact that he believed that the election was stolen, kept pushing back against her insistence that the evidence shows that it wasn't, and at the same time, he put out a pretty much his campaign speech. He laid out 
the foibles of the Biden administration and why he should be president again. Um, let, let's listen to a little bit of this. I think I think you'll enjoy it. It was not a rigged election. It was not a stolen election. You and your supporters lost more than 60 court cases on the election. It's been nearly two and a half years. Can you publicly acknowledge that you did lose the 2020 election? Let me, let me just go on. If you look at True the Vote, they found millions of votes on camera, on government cameras, where uh, they were stuffing ballot boxes. So with all of that, I think it's a shame that what happened, I think it's a very sad thing for our country. I think it's a very sad thing, frankly, for the world, because if you look at what's gone to our country, our country has gone to hell. Our borders are bad. Our military has been bad. You look at the taxes. You look at inflation. What's happened to inflation? It's just destroying our country. Uh, we've really become, in many ways, a third world country. And it's very sad what's happened in this administration. And it's uh, something that will turn around on day one. We were energy independent. Now energy is at a level that we've never had to pay before. We Nobody can afford to continue to pay what's happening with energy. But we were energy independent. Uh, we were getting out of Afghanistan with strength and with dignity. And instead, we got out, we looked like fools, probably the most embarrassing President, moment in the history of our country. We have a lot of questions about the economy and foreign Good. policy tonight. But, but what you just said there, Republican officials debunked those claims about fraudulent ballots. We want to give you a Who? chance tonight. Who? Republican officials Who? in Georgia and every single state. Uh, there is no, your own election officials, Mr. Look, President. Uh, Okay. okay, I just this absolutely is President Trump at his best. Um, I, he was he he had a a very consistent flow of thought as he was talking about this. Now, agree or disagree with what he's saying about the 2020 election? Uh, he presented that in a way that was compelling, and in the middle of it, he was able to insert a campaign speech. That's why the president. That's why President Trump decided to do this. I mean, a lot of people would ask the question: Why in the world would you go on CNN? Why would you accept that interview? And my answer to that is: Why would you not? Because in a contest between Caitlin Collins, who is a, I don't have anything against Caitlin, Caitlin Collins. I think she does a, a good job. But there's no way that she's going to be able to overcome President Trump, his style by simply sitting over there and disagreeing with him. Trump's got, uh, Trump's got the advantage, and he knows it. And this crowd in New Hampshire absolutely ate it up. Um, I don't think anybody should be surprised about that. Let's, let's listen to a couple of other things. Uh, Caitlin Collins tried to talk about the uh, classified documents, and at one point Trump gets a little testy because he basically says to her that she's a nasty person. Here we go. Obama. Joe Biden didn't ignore a subpoena to get those documents back like Joe you Biden did. And took so that's the question. Boxes. But that's the question that investigators have, I think, is why you held on to those documents when you knew the federal government was seeking them and then had given you a subpoena to return them. Are you them. ready? Are you ready? Can I talk? Yeah, what's you the mind? answer? Can I, do you mind? I would like for you to answer the question. Okay, it's very simple to answer. That's why I asked it. It's very simple to you are a nasty person, I'll tell you. Now, Here's the thing. Listen to the sound of the crowd. I mean, you know, when they love this about Donald Trump, these are people when he anytime he pushes back against the legacy media, even if he's standing there being asked a legitimate question 
I mean, I'm, I'm not defending Caitlin Collins, but I'm simply saying that nothing in that exchange made her a nasty person. I mean, he had to know that going on CNN and talking at a town hall that he was going to get those questions and that they weren't just going to sit back and let him give the answer for a while. They were going to come back with other information and challenge him on his answers. Um, but the crowd loved it. I mean, what are you going to say? Uh, the, the folks that were there, he got a big cheer when he called her a nasty person. And I, this is the thing about Trump that so many people like that I just don't get. I mean, I, 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 I think you should be bold and stand on what you believe and forthrightly speak what you believe this is the truth. You should know the truth and then speak it and speak it with confidence. But why is it necessary for him when, when he starts getting pressured, then the name-calling comes out, and I think that turns off a lot of independent um, and voters that we're going to need. It looks like President Trump's going to be the nominee at this point. Now, it's very, very early, and things can change very, very quickly when we're talking about politics. But, but if you had to put a, you know, a, a flag down and say who's going to win— it would be, at this point, it looks like Trump's going to be the Republican nominee. And if that's the case, he's going to need independent voters. He's going to need suburban women, people that a lot of people in the Republican base just dismiss. Um, and if, you, if those people don't come back to Trump, then there's going to be a moment where Trump will accuse the election process of, of being rigged. Um, you know, and another thing that's been interesting about this this primary season is that President Trump has pretty much threatened. He's he's said, "Well, if the Republicans reject me, if I'm not the candidate, then I'm not going to support Republicans. I'll come out against them and I'll help the opposition win." Um, is is that is that what we want? We want to have a presidential candidate who's basically threatening the electorate telling primary voters, okay, you reject me and I'm going to have my revenge on you. Um, I, I'm, I, I think that should make us very uncomfortable. Now, whether it does or not is up to you. I just, I just find that to kind of be disturbing. All right. Um, now another good moment for president Trump last night when Caitlin, um, Collins went after him about what happened on January 6th and whether the president was encouraging that or why he didn't discourage it. President Trump reached in his pocket and pulled out some of the uh, copies of some of the text message that, messages that he sent. And I, I got to say, I thought this was pretty effective. So when, they, when they went to the Capitol and they were breaking into the Capitol, smashing windows, injuring police officers, why did, you, why did it take you three hours to tell them to go home? I don't believe it did. Oh, let me pull it out. I have to pull it out. So, so if you look at on January 5th, the day before, I said, please support our Capitol Police and law enforcement. They are truly on the side of our country. Stay peaceful. Stay peaceful. This was the day before, and this was in the form of Twitter. Now use truth. Truth social, I think it's far superior, okay? I hope everybody's on truth. I hope everybody's on truth. Uh, if you look, January 6th, this is at two, before 2.30. I am asking for everyone at the U.S. Capitol to remain peaceful. This is right after, as it was happening, 
But what happened is they took it down. I don't know why. I think they took it down because it was so good. They didn't like it being up there. <laughs> I am asking, this is, and we didn't know until I got it back because now I have 90 million people waiting for me to go back, but I'm on truth and I'm staying on truth. Listen, I am asking for everyone at the U.S. Capitol to remain peaceful. No violation. It's, we want no violation. We want no violence. Remember, we are the party of law and order. Respect the law and our great men and women in blue. Thank you. That was at 2.30. That was very early. Mr. President, I looked at the same time. Yeah. I, I don't know what she's going to say at that point. I didn't. I, I, this actually, this part of the conversation took place before I got home last night and was able to be watching it. But I'm, I'm just telling you, he he wins that back and forth with Caitlin Collins. I mean, reaching in, the, the optics of pulling out copies of his tweets, um, and I'm sure she pushed back against it. But the point is for Trump supporters and for, I mean, he is, what he's doing right now is he is consolidating his base. He's bringing the people together that are going to be the ones that are going to be most likely to, to come out of all of the states and support him 100%. He's building that base because he wants to win the primary. And he knows that it's possible for him to build such a lead that it doesn't matter who gets in the race, uh, they're not going to have an opportunity to overtake him. Now, I'm not predicting that that's going to happen. I'm just saying that Senator Scott, who's probably going to get in next week, um, we've already got Ambassador Haley, we've got former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, uh, we've got a few others that are running on the Republican side, and of course, uh, as soon as the Florida legislature wraps up their business, it's very likely that Governor DeSantis is going to get in. Uh, everybody's writing him off at this point. I think he still has a chance to win the nomination. But this performance by President Trump last night, I mean, it was classic Trump. And it, it as far as you can hear the response of the audience. Now, something that's interesting, when the camera was panning the audience members, it was mostly from what I saw, the men that were reacting and, and cheering the president on, there, there were some women doing that, but a lot of the women in the audience were just staring. I mean, I, I think, again, I think President Trump is, the, the way that he responds, sometimes it is good for him. Sometimes I think it's very hurtful because he's pushing away while he's building that Republican base that he's going to need to win the primary. He's pushing away the independent voters and women voters who are uncomfortable with the way he presents himself. All right. In this next cut, uh, the president responds to the civil jury trial verdict. And as you can imagine, uh, he wasn't really happy about it. And I swear to I have no idea who the hell... She's a Mr. whack President, job. You, you did not... Oh, okay. Now, what everybody's going crazy about is the fact he called her a whack job. And, uh, you know, I, I, I get that. She's... she's a, and, and we talked about this extensively yesterday. I don't think the evidence that she presented that the jury should have found him liable. I mean, there's there were multiple holes in her story, things that she said closer to the time that she that the actual uh, alleged event happened that just don't add up. They don't make sense. 
Um, it, it's the same thing that happened, and like I said yesterday, with Kavanaugh and the women who came forward. Those The stories that they told had the sound of made-up stories, and so did this story. But and you've got a you've got a jury in Manhattan that says, okay, we we're we can't go along with you on the rape charge, but we can go along with you on the rest of it, uh, the sexual battery, the defamation. So we're going to give you five million dollars. Uh, I'm telling you that does not hurt Trump with the base. Will it hurt him with the American people? That remains to be seen in terms of people outside of the Republican base. I'm talking about in the general election with these groups, with independents, with suburban women. Um, All right. Now, President Trump said last night that, first of all, that if he had been elected president, there would be no war in Ukraine, uh, which we can debate that. I, I happen to believe that that's probably true because I don't think President Trump would have made a disaster out of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which I believe emboldened Vladimir Putin to invade Ukraine. But be that as it may, President Trump said if you elect him and the war is still going on, uh, he'll solve it in 24 hours. Here we go. Let me just put it a nicer way. Uh, If I'm president, I will have that war settled in one day, 24 hours. How would you settle that war in one day? Because I'll meet with Putin, I'll meet with Zelensky. They both have weaknesses and they both have strengths. And within 24 hours, that war will be settled. It'll be over. It'll be absolutely Do you over. want Ukraine to win this war? Uh, I don't think in terms of winning and losing. I think in terms of getting it settled so we stop killing all these people and breaking out this, this country. Now, what do you... Can I just follow up on that? You said you don't think in terms of winning and losing. Mr. President, can I just follow up on that? Because that's a really important no, excuse statement me, let me just, just follow made up. there. Can you say if you want Ukraine or Russia to win this war? I want everybody to stop dying. They're dying, Russians and Ukrainians. I want them to stop dying. And I'll have that done. I'll have that done in 24 hours. I'll have it done. You need the power of the presidency to do it. But you won't say that you want Ukraine to win. You you know what I'll say? I'll say this. I want Europe to put up more money because they're in for 20 billion. We're in for 170. And they should be. And they should equalize Okay. Um, the interesting thing about this, the, the take that President Trump has on the war in Ukraine, uh, he's walking a tightrope. Why? Because there are a lot of his supporters in the Republican base that like Vladimir Putin. They like the fact that he's a strong man. Uh, a lot of them talk about the fact that they believe he's a Christian. I mean, I've heard some of this stuff being talked about. And because of that, The president feels like if he comes out, he realizes politically, he knows his base. He knows where they are. He realizes if he comes out and just says, I want the Ukrainians to win the war. I think Vladimir Putin is uh, an evil influence and that Russia needs to be put back in their box. If he says those things, he's going to alienate a number of his supporters. So what does he do? I just want the killing to stop. Well, who doesn't want the killing to stop? Of course, everybody wants people to stop dying when there's a war going on. But then the question becomes, who is in the right in this war? And the president's not willing to take a stand on that. All right, that's that's all the time we've got. I I had some responses here. Uh, Well, you can imagine what the left uh, responses have been to this. I mean, Democrats were blasting. I mean, absolutely blasting CNN 
for having Trump on to begin with. Um, uh, Matthew Dowd wrote, he tweeted, okay, I watched as much as I could. CNN was completely unprepared to hold Trump accountable. CNN has done a a complete disservice to our democracy. I withheld judgment on this until I saw it. CNN, you failed journalism in our country. Yeah, Why, why would he say that? Because Trump came off being able to get his points across, and he was able to do it without looking overly combative. He was combative, but it was it was a subdued combativeness that he's not known for. So he looked a little bit more, he was in control, but he looked a little bit more like he was rationally in control. Um, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, this falls squarely on CNN. Everyone here saw exactly what was going to happen. Instead, they put a sexual abuse victim in harm's way for views. This was a choice to perform lies about, to platform rather, lies about the election in January 6th with no plan but to have their moderator interrupted without consequence. See, what what Ocasio-Cortez wants, she wants the game rigged in favor of the interviewer, always when it's a conservative or certainly Donald Trump on the other side. She doesn't care about free speech. She doesn't care about having an equal opportunity to make a case about one thing or another. She simply wants, like all progressives, to be in control. They can't stand the fact that they think they own CNN, which they have owned CNN philosophically, and that CNN would dare to allow Donald Trump to come on, even though he's a candidate. He's the leading Republican candidate for the Republican nomination for president. Even though that's true, she thinks he needs to be silenced. And that tells you just about everything that you need to know about, honestly, about where progressives are coming from. Um, It's not a very good place. All right, that's all the time we've got. Actually, we're a little bit over time today, but that's okay. That's one of the good things about doing the show this way. I can kind of cut it a little bit short if I need to. I can go a little bit over. I want to thank you for listening. We are going to have Backpatting Day tomorrow. Friday is tomorrow, so I hope you'll join us. And in between, I hope you'll tell people about the program. Go to drtonybeam.com. That's drtonybeam.com. You can find out more about me, things I'm involved in. You can find out more about the show and pass it on to others. God bless you.